This morning we're going to look at praying Americans. And we thought, uh, I'd give you a free thought before we get into the Word of God this morning. As I was looking up, I always like for uh, the uh, uh, preaching time and, 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 and during the message to have some things that help illustrate the Word of God. I'm careful never to say enhance the Word of God. The Bible needs no enhancement. Uh, but in some instances, when you give an illustration or an example, it helps uh, to maybe crystallize a thought. Uh, this one has nothing to do with it, but as this week was folding, unfolding, I thought this was an even better and better quote. It's from Davy Crockett, that, uh, he's a Tennessean, but that great statesman that he was, and we'll forgive him for being from Tennessee, he says this, and I thought this was great. If you want to write it down, go for it. It says, I will not go into an argument to prove that Congress has no power to appropriate this money as an act of charity. Every member on this floor knows it. We have the right as individuals to give away as much of our own money as we please in charity. But as members of Congress, we have no right to appropriate a dollar of the public's money. Boy, what happened to statesmen like that? The Bible says, if you will with me, back in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and in verse 13, we'll read together. The Bible says, if I shut up heaven, that therefore uh, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. Mindful that verse 13 is clearly present in our day. It is clearly present in our land. And so, Father, if the first half of the sentence is true, verse 13, then the second half is also true that if we, your people, will humble ourselves and pray, then you will heal our land. We recognize this morning, Father, that this promise was given specifically and purposefully to Israel. But I do believe that the principle of praying people is still honored by you. And so this morning, Father, we understand what the psalmist said, that righteousness exalteth a nation. And we then, as people, need to be righteous. And one of the ways, the most foremost way, is that we are a praying people. Help us to understand prayer and America this morning. Praying as Americans. Help us in this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. America, it has been said, was founded as a Christian nation. Only in the sense, I would add, that most of the founding fathers were at least nominal Christians or Christian in principle, such as equal equality by creation undergirded the ideas of our revolution. These men saw faith and morality as indispensable supports to the health of the republic, as George Washington put it in his 1796 farewell address. Public prayer was a constant feature of the early government of the United States. Congress hired chaplains to offer prayers during their sessions. By the way, this is a, an entanglement that radical secularists still lament today. That there were prayers at the Constitutional Congress. That there were prayers in our first congressional meetings. And that in fact, prayers are still offered on the House and Senate floors even today. Though I would add that the prayers that are offered are 
a far cry from the original ones that were given. In 1777, the Continental Congress appointed a day of prayer and summoned Americans to penitent confession of their manifold sins and humble and earnest supplication that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ mercifully to forgive and blot their transgressions out of remembrance. Could you imagine our Congress today making an edict like that? In October 1789, George Washington followed the long-standing precedent by proclaiming the first day of national thanksgiving and prayer under the new Constitution. Likewise, John Adams issued a declaration for a national fast in 1798 and called on citizens to ask God through their Redeemer of the world freely to remit all our offenses and to incline us by His Holy Spirit to that sincere repentance and reformation which may afford us reason to hope for His, for his inestimable favor. We could go on with many more examples, but the point is this. The founders assumed that religion, including prayer, would have a strong public presence in America. Abraham Lincoln later agreed. He said this, and I quote, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our heart that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that provides. Oh my, how terrible and how difficult the thought should be and for each of us this morning. How difficult it should be for us to understand what it is that God does desire for us. Look with me in Second Chronicles chapter 7 here and in verses 12 through 16. I'm going to turn the microphone off. I believe it's popping on me here or it's doing something so I don't want to annoy you and distract me. I don't want the Spirit of God's presence to not be in this place. 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 12, the Bible says, And the Lord appeared unto Solomon by night. Understand with me this, this morning what it is that God was dealing with. What it is that God was sharing with Solomon. We need to understand the context and the place of 2 Chronicles 7. Oh, we hear it a lot, do we not? If my people which shall humble themselves, and if they will pray... Seek my face, then will I heal their land. What's the context of this verse? Where is it found in scriptures? How is it that we can appropriately apply this verse? Well, we need to see it and understand it. And from its source and where it was mentioned and where it was used and why it was used, that God will in fact come and heal our land. Chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles, we see that Solomon, the king, preaches to the people. Can you imagine our president standing up and preaching a, an, expo, an expository message about the virtues of God and godliness? And by the way, I have a hard time thinking that any president after Abraham Lincoln would have the ability to stand up and preach such a message before the people of this country. So let's not get too myopic and think that just our current president would not do that. 
It is a difficult thing in this society in which we live. And so Solomon stands before the people in chapter 6 and he preaches on the importance of God. In verse 12 of chapter 6, he begins a prayer of dedication for the people of God. The Bible says he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands. For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long and five cubits broad and three cubits high and had set it in the midst of the court and upon it he stood and kneeled upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands towards heaven. Solomon was praying to the God of heaven for the people that he stood before. So that is the context in which we then draw into chapter 7. We see that because he preached the word and he prayed to the God of heaven, that God's presence was upon the people. And he was real to them in verse 1 of chapter 7. The Bible says, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And so the context of 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14 is not in the midst of wickedness. It's not in the midst of a perverse nation, not at least at this point of its reading. We understand that Israel later became very corrupt, very wrong, uh, very far from God. But in the sense that we understand it and we see the context, this passage is given to a people who were wholly consecrated to God at this moment. It was given to the people at the completion of the, of the building of the temple. And so not only is it given to a consecrated people, but it's given to a consecrated people in the house of God. In essence, it's a perfect message to preach in church. Because it is here that the people of God, who are called by His name, who are gathered together on this morning can be challenged from the Word of God that good can come even in a wicked nation. That good can be done in a time like this. So long as two things happen, the Word of God is preached and the people accept it and pray. That's it. You say, well, pastor, are you done preaching? No, I want us this morning to look at this prayer. I want us to look at this concept of praying Americans. I want us to see what it is that God wants us to see. I want us to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. And so this morning as we consider this passage of Scripture, I would encourage you to consider with me that in verse 13 we see America. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. By the way, what we see there is really a modern day America. How many natural disasters do we have to have from God to awaken to His desire to be in our midst again? Every natural disaster is because God is trying to judge us, though. That's not what I'm saying. But I do believe there are great catastrophes, great disasters that God brings into the lives of His people and unbelieving people to draw their attention once again back to Him. I think it's interesting when we read this verse that He shuts up the heaven that there be no rain. How many weeks has it been since we've had rain here? You're saying this is because God is judging central Kentucky? I don't know. I simply know one of the curses of God upon the land is famine and drought because of no rain. 
Ask your bean farmers how this year has gone. April and May, so much rain they couldn't get their beans to take root. And June and July, so dry they can't grow. Ask your corn farmer how their crops have turned out. Meager at best, many have been lost in the breadbasket of this nation. Uh, You go through Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, into Kentucky and the western parts. And that is considered the breadbasket not only of this nation, friends, but of the entire world. And yet we find that it is becoming very difficult for our land to produce. Check out the price of corn as we were talking about this week. Consider the rate at which its price is rising. Why? There's scarcity. There's not been rain. Pestilence is another word that's an interesting study here. And so we understand that at least in this context, Solomon is now through the Spirit of God, speaking to us. Pestilence, as a word, speaks to disease and plague. We are a diseased land. Uh, Take into account all of the sexually transmitted diseases that are pervasive in our high schools, in our colleges, in our inner city areas. Take into account all of the uh, ravages that AIDS and that cancer and other diseases have taken hold in our country. And is every person that has one of those being judged by God? No! But pestilence is a curse from God. And it is upon a land who has turned their back from God. He says to the people in verse 13, He would shut up the heavens from rain, that He would command locusts to devour their land, and that the pestilence would be there. It's interesting, that idea of locusts. We often think of locusts being just a bug. And I think in in context, there is that sense. But if you study the children of Israel, the locust is anything that comes from outside and attacks. Israel was infested with people groups that were locusts to them, that they had not taken care of. In fact, we find out in the judgment of the nations upon uh, in, in Jer- Isaiah and in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, the judgment upon the nations is because they had come into Israel, perverted Israel, Israel had fallen, and they, like locusts, had eaten up their land, the prophets say. I would even submit to you that Many of our problems on immigration and other reforms stem from the fact that we have a locust problem in this nation. Do you realize that unemployment could be solved if every American just started working the jobs that Americans should be working? In the 1900s, or the early part of the 1900s, that being the, or I say the 19th century, that'd be the 1800s, this country was an agricultural country. It wasn't until the late 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, the 20th century, that it began to become this thought that all of Americans needed to have a desk job. Or that there needed to be all of these rules so that we were the ones that were working in the air-conditioned buildings doing all of that work. Pastor, you're not saying that all of our young people today need to go work on farms. It's probably doing a lot of good. Well, Americans won't do those jobs. No, Americans choose not to do those jobs. I remember when I worked at the cemetery that I worked at. I lasted for two and a half weeks, by the way, but I worked at Fairfax Memorial Park. Uh, My brother Gary Hasselflug had gotten me the job there at Fairfax Baptist Temple, real nice guy. He had gotten me the job. I was in between work. I worked with crooks and convicts and drug addicts, and here I was, this clean-cut Baptist boy, working with all these people. And the first question I asked is, why don't you guys work somewhere else? The answer, we can't. 
The guy said, one of the guys said to me, we either work at graveyards and cemeteries or we go out to the Midwest and work on farms. And he said to me, point blank, I'm not doing that. We've trained generations that shy away from work. And so this morning as we consider this thought, we then now look at verse 14. We, we have to understand that verse 13 is the beginning of the sentence. Verse 14 is the answer of the sentence. It is the second half. He said these things will be there if there's no rain, if there's locusts and pestilence in your land, if the curses of God are upon you that were upon Egypt. If that is there, then you need to hit your knees. Then... You need to pray. And so as we look at this and we consider this thought this morning, we need to become praying Americans. In fact, as we consider this, I would submit to you that we should consider our own flag as our source of reason, logic, learning, of how to pray for our country. It's interesting when you study the flag that the red of our flag, there is no reason we have red, white, and blue on our flag. Uh, Betsy Ross, when she began sewing it, when the Continental Congress adopted it, uh, the, the, the framers did not have a reason. Now, in the great seal of the United States, there is a flag. And that flag, the colors on it, red, white, and blue, have reason. Red uh, is for the hardiness or the valor of Americans. The white is for the righteousness and purity of Americans. And the, and the blue is for the vigilance and perseverance of Americans. And so may I submit to you this morning that we would do well to pray our flag colors for our nation. We'll consider from Scripture this morning the red, the white, and the blue. You want a way to be a praying American? Pray your colors. Pray the flag. We see in the passage this morning in verse 14... God starts by saying, if my people, which are called by my name, I would submit to you first and foremost this morning that we could pray the red. What do we pray when we pray the red? We pray for the salvation of our people. That's a good place to start when you start praying for people, friends. Pray for their salvation. Pray for the work of God in their hearts. Every time we look at a color this morning, I would ask us to consider both our Heavenly Father's thoughts and our forefathers' thoughts on this subject. We are a Christian nation as we claim to be, then we should be able to find in our history leaders, forefathers of this great nation, who would agree with what God says. And so first, consider with me what God says in Romans chapter 10 and in verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear record, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Does that sound like most Americans? God bless America, they'll sing. But do they really know the God that is to be blessing this nation of ours? They have a zeal. They have a, 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 a knowledge of God. Or they have an understanding of who He is. They, they know in heaven who He is, but they really don't know Him. Sounds like Israel. Paul continues, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone that believe it. Paul said, look, my prayer for Israel, my people, is that they would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's a good prayer for Americans. 
you want to hit your knees this week and pray for your fellow Americans, perhaps you hit your knees and pray for your fellow Americans on the matter of salvation. You see, you can pray for your fellow Americans in salvation both personally, a neighbor, someone you know, a co-worker, someone you work with, a family member, one that you love. Because unless they are saved, unless they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, decisions, godly decisions, righteous decisions cannot be found in them. Oh, but I have a relative who is a good and godly person, even though they're not saved. They have, may have morals, but they don't know the God of their morality. They don't know the God of this book. That's why Paul in verse 4 there says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Listen, we as a nation, we're not founded by every founder being a true Bible-believing Christian as the New Testament teaches it. But they were moral and they at least understood that the law of God was for our good. But Paul says, my prayer for Israel, and by the way, our prayer for our fellow Americans, ought to be that they know Jesus Christ, the end of the law. May it be that our heart's desire and prayer to God is that America might be saved. What do our forefathers think about this? George Washington said, It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of, the all, of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for benefits, and humbly to implore His protection, aid, and favors. Without a humble imitation of the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Samuel Adams said this, I recommend my soul to that almighty being who gave it and my body I commit to the dust, relying upon the merits of Jesus Christ for a pardon of all my sins. Friends, that man was saved. John Jay, the first Supreme Court Chief Justice, said this, Unto him who is the author and giver of all good, I render sincere and humble thanks for his manifold and unmerited blessings, and especially for our redemption and salvation by his beloved Son. He has been pleased to bless me with excellent parents, with a virtuous wife, and with worthy children. His protection has accompanied me through many eventful years, faithfully employed in the service of my country. His providence has not only conducted me to this tranquil situation, but has also given me abundant reason to be contented and thankful. Blessed be His holy name. Oh, that we'd have a chief justice that would say that now. Benjamin Rush, a declaration signer and the father of our modern, or not of our modern, let me rephrase that, the father of public schools in America, said this, and I would ask you to consider if our current Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, would say this. Benjamin Rush said this, My only hope of salvation is in the infinite, transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of His Son upon the cross. Nothing but His blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Wow. Friends, it would do us good as Christians to pray for our fellow Americans that they might receive Jesus Christ. If we believe this book, and we believe it to be true, and we believe it to teach that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, and we believe it changes people's lives, then why aren't we praying that this book would be in front of all Americans? It is our responsibility to pray the red, to pray for their salvation. God says to Solomon that the answer to a pestilence-filled, no-rain, drought-ridden, uh, locust-eaten land is to have His people who are called by His name 
to take action. By the way, friends, the more, the merrier. The more believers there are, the better the morality of this nation will be. It is why this country had, as we often say, its good old days. <laughs> because there were some good old Christians who lived the red and prayed it for their fellow man. But if we're to pray the red, then we're to pray the white as well. Pray for the sanctification and the purity of believers. As you pray for America, you ought to pray that your fellow Christian Americans ought to live purity, holiness, and sanctity before their fellow Americans. Oh, how terrible it is for me to see Christians who don't live their Christianity. It's awful when I watch news reports of a pastor who has been taken as a pedophile. It is disparaging to me and discouraging to me when I see that there are Christians who are in open drunkenness or in open adultery or living in open sin. How is it that we can change America if we've not been changed ourselves? Pray for the sanctification and the purity. This is the white. It speaks of holiness. It speaks of pureness. What did Jesus think about this? What are our Heavenly Father's thoughts in this matter? 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Ephesians 4 verses 20 through 24 say this, But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man. That means the old lifestyle which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. What did Solomon say about it? What does God tell us here in verse 14? If my people, which are called by my name, now he's speaking in respect only to those that know him. This verse in the Old Testament could not have been taken by the Edomites and used by them. This passage could not have been taken by the Amorites and used by them. But the other people groups that were around could not have taken this verse. This was given to Israel. And may I say in the New Testament, this is a principle given to you and I. He says in verse 14, If they shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear. You see, friends, if we pray for the salvation of others so that there's more of us who are in that my people group, and that we as a people group decide that we are going to pray for the sanctification, the purification, and the holy living standards of one another as believers, then we will start to understand that God will answer from heaven. What did our forefathers think about religion's impact on society? The sanctifying process, the purification, if you will, of believers. Washington, in his farewell address, said this, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism, who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and cherish them. 
A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. He said, public truthfulness, public living of what you say and what you're doing being in contact. He said, you could write books of how righteousness impacts right leading. Then he concludes, let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life? If the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice. He said these tenets of religion, holiness, purity, difference, separated from the world, these are the instruments of judgment. Let us be with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conducted to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structures, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Get that last part. National morality, he says, cannot prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. Yet, but yet today we are told to keep the church out of the state. Friends, the Constitution does not teach that. Uh, the founders and the framers did not desire that. What they wanted was the government out of the church. They didn't want the Church of England, part two. John Adams says this, It is the duty of the clergy, that's me, the pastor, to accommodate their discourses to the times, to preach against such sins as most, are as most prevalent, and recommend such virtues as are most wanted. It is sad that our comic book heroes live by mottos and creeds that modern Americans don't want. Captain America and Superman, truth, justice in the American way. (laughs) But yet Americans today teach that truth is relative and that justice is subjective to the person in the situation and that the American way and and exceptionalism is something that should be looked down upon and frowned upon because after all, that makes us a haughty people. No! We were talking about this in Sunday school class this morning, and it begs its, its, its imposition here. Uh, we look in America, and what do we see? Churches, people, uh, individuals, they all sink to the lowest common denominator of man, do they not? Yet what does God always teach us to do? To achieve to the highest possible levels. This nation was built upon exceptionalism. It was built upon a a principle of manifest destiny. Because we believe we're endowed by our Creator, we want to have a spirit of achievement. But yet in America, the principles and ideals of Christianity have been so whitewashed and removed and watered down that we no longer live by those principles. They're no longer guiding in our society. Calvin Coolidge One of our presidents said this, the foundation of our society and our government rests so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. I wonder what President Coolidge would say if he were here in America today. Dwight Eisenhower, a more recent president, said this, the spirit of men is more important than physical strength. He was one of our greatest generals in World War II. He should know. And the spiritual fiber of a nation than is wealth. The wealth of America is immaterial if the spiritual fiber has decayed, Eisenhower says. 
And so we're to pray the red for the salvation of our fellow Americans. It's a good weekly or morning prayer for this country. We're to pray the white for the purity and the sanctification of the believers in this land. So that we might be able to promote and further the values that we believe in. But we're to pray the blue. And that is to pray for singleness of purpose. You see, the blue in the flag stands for perseverance and vigilance to the purpose or the cause. That is America. I'm not suggesting that Americans should have one religion. I'm not suggesting that everyone will be saved. But I am suggesting that we can pray for this nation to once again regain our traditions of singleness of purpose. That being namely this, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see, we had a singular purpose that began in this nation. We had a singleness of mind that was built upon the solidarity of the Word of God. And so we need to understand that this prayer of ours for our nation does involve the salvation of others. It does involve our own sanctification and purity and living out our Christian principles. But it is a singleness of purpose. It is a unifying thought in America again. What is it that is America? Disunity. If I could pick one word that says, what is 2012 America, it might be disunity or it might be fractured, might be another word we might use. How many special interest groups are there out there? My goodness, as many as you can count, as high a number as you can pick. There used to be a singleness of purpose. We saw this in the great world wars. We saw this in the conflict between the states. Uh, We saw this in the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. We saw the singleness of purpose, the, the idea of what this country is about. So we need to have a singleness of purpose. Our purpose as believers is to fulfill the Great Commission. Here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, we see that God has a singleness of purpose. What is that singleness of purpose? It's in the last half of the verse. If my people which are called by name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. He said, look, I won't hear from heaven so long as you're in your sins. But friend, if you're not in your sins, if you're in obedience with me, if you're in accord with my word, if you're living and working according to what I've asked of you to do, I will hear from heaven and I will heal your land. And so as Americans, we can say that we need to have a singleness of purpose, praying for the salvation of souls. We do need to have a singleness of purpose, the sanctification and and, and purity of believers living their principles. But in this idea of singleness of purpose, we need to fulfill the Great Commission. As an individual believer, I should be fulfilling it, but as a collection of believers in this church, our goal is to reach the lost for Jesus Christ. It is right and it is appropriate that we pray for our church and churches like us to preach revival, to preach salvation, to preach sanctification, holiness before God. And it is right for us to pray that our people will give their lives to serving God. Our singleness of purpose comes from this great commission. Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20 say this, Go ye therefore... And teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things. The the gospel accounts are clear, concise, and on point at all points. 
all four Gospels and the beginning of the church history before Jesus ascended into heaven, five different times it's recorded that Jesus gives a commissioning address, a farewell speech, if you will. In Mark chapter 16 and verses 15 and 16, he emphasizes going into all the world, preaching to every creature. In, cha- in Luke chapter 24, verses 47 through 48, he says that, we're to, that repentance and remission of sins is to be preached. In fact, he finishes by saying, and you're witnesses of these things. John chapter 20 and verse 21, we see that there is this peace he, he gives to us. In, in verse 21, he says, peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And then we come to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So our Heavenly Father's thoughts is as a church, as believers, as Christians and as Americans, we ought to have a singular purpose. And what is that? The propagation of the gospel. The spreading of the good news. Listen, you cannot go out and politically fix this country. Do we all understand that this morning? You cannot go out and politically legislate this country. Sit down with me sometime and go through through with me what the founding fathers thought about legislating morality. There's a reason our government in the beginning had very few, (laughs) very few additions in that Bill of Rights. Very few things to our Constitution. Very small in what it defined government to be. Because they wanted people to be free. They wanted churches to practice their religion. And if one church could promote their religion better than another church, then so be it according to the framers. That's what the people would want. And yet so often we want to legislate our morality. Pastor, are you against doing that? No, I think there are some good things that we should legislate. I think there's some good things we should be involved with as Christians. May I add to our Scott County residents that on July 31st, we have a good thing that we can vote for. Our local paper and others have told us that it is a, it is a ridiculous cause for a county to now be voting between being moist and wet because we're no longer dry. I say to the newspaper, baloney. <laughs> What's good for us to do is that we should show up that day and vote for that cause and we should start a petition and turn this county into a dry county again. What? Pastor, it's 2012 and you lost your marbles? Are you sure you're not 86 instead of 36? That's what they used to do in Scott County. That's not what they do anymore. I think there's things that we can impact our society on. And if something like that comes up for vote and we have the right and freedom as citizens of this country, citizens of this commonwealth, and citizens of this county, that we should go out and vote for it so that we can stop legislation that is not good and that is harmful. But I would say to you, the framers of the Constitution did not have in mind that the church would be running every bill before its pews, before it ran before its voting pulpit. It is our purpose, our singular purpose, to share the good news of salvation with every man, every woman, every boy and girl. That's it. As a church, when we do that, and the Lord Jesus Christ lives in their heart, the Spirit of God indwells them at that moment of salvation, then their process and their approach to their politics will change. For us to try to change the political structure instead of changing the person who is part of that structure is ridiculous.
Pray the blue, a singleness of purpose on the part of churches and believers to accomplish what God wants to accomplish once again in this land. What did our forefathers think about this idea of singleness of purpose? Nathan Hale said this, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. You know, I wonder if some Christians shouldn't adopt that for themselves. I regret that there's only one of me to go out on visitation on Tuesday night. I regret there's only one of me to go on gospel lists each month. I regret there's only one of me in my workplace. I wish there were two. I could reach twice as many people for Jesus Christ. George Washington said the hour is fast approaching on which the honor and success of this army and the safety of our bleeding country depend. Remember, officers and soldiers, that you are free men fighting for the blessings of liberty, that slavery will be your portion, and that of posterity if you do not acquit yourselves like men. Our own country's honor all call upon us for a vigorous and manly exertion. And if we now shamefully fail, we shall become infamous to the whole world. Let us therefore rely upon the goodness of the cause and the aid of the supreme being in whose hands victory is to animate and encourage us to the great and noble action. The eyes of all of our countrymen are now upon us and we shall have their blessings and praise if happily we are the instruments of saving them from the tyranny mediated against them. Friends, let me tell you, that message applies to Christians. There is a tyranny that is mediated against the lost and dying man in this country and it is your singleness of purpose to get out and share your faith. It's a good prayer request this week. It's a good thing for you to pray. It's a good thing for you to hit your knees and say, God, don't let me get focused on my career. Don't let me get focused on my own passions and burdens. Let me be singularly focused on a purpose that is eternally blessed. Everett Hale, nephew of Nathan Hale, said this, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I should do, and with the help of God, I will do. Boy, maybe you need to adopt that as a motto or a creed for yourself. Robert Payne, a declaration signer, said this, I desire to bless and praise the name of God Most High for appointing me my birth in the land of gospel light, where the glorious tidings of a Savior and a pardon of salvation through Him have been continually sounding in mine ears. Friends, we can pray the red, white, and blue. Solomon tells us here in... 2 Chronicles 7, that before trouble ever came to Israel, (laughs) before the troubles of King Ahab, before the splitting and dividing of the kingdom under Jeroboam and Rehoboam, his own sons, before all the calamities for Israel and Judah that is prophesied and written about in Isaiah and Jeremiah, before all those ever came, God says, when they come, prayer's your answer. And so I ask us as Americans this morning, Is it really in our best interest to just complain and boo-hoo about all the problems in this land? I say that sort of sarcastically and tongue-in-cheek because that's what I hear a lot. Well, there's just so many problems in this land, preacher. Yes, there are. (laughs) And you know what God's solution has been for problems in any nation since the beginning of time? The Word of God and prayer. The psalmist says this, what? Righteousness exalted a nation. And so I ask you this morning, are you a righteous person? When you pray for America, remember this week, in closing, the red, the white, and the blue.
I believe it will serve as a reminder of what needs to happen to turn America from a secular humanistic fall that we are in the death throes of. The red for the salvation of men's souls, the white for the sanctification and purity of the redeemed, and the blue for the singleness of purpose for all who claim Jesus Christ as her Savior. Notice in closing what Solomon says in verses 15 and 16. After they pray, after they've humbled themselves and gotten rid of their wicked ways, after he has answered, he says in verse 15, Now mine eyes shall be opened, mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made where? What are those last three words? Where? In this place. Now I remind you, where are they gathered? Remember, context is everything in the Bible. Where are these people gathered? Where is the prayer focused and most uh, uh, effective, if you will? It is in the house of God. It is through the people of God. Here in the temple they were gathered and he says they are gathered in this place praying for this cause. And he will heal their land. Pastor, can I not pray at home? Absolutely you can pray at home. But friends, it is good for us to gather and pray. Jesus tells us where two or three are gathered in my name, His presence is there. He also says that when two agree on a matter, it will be done in heaven. There is something powerful about you and I praying together as people. Oh, this verse is misused so often. But oh, how wonderful this verse is. Friends, if we become praying Americans, praying the principles that God teaches Israel here, we can see a healing come upon our land. And I would encourage you this week, pray. And if you need a little help in how to pray, just look at the flag.